Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of the Empathy Machine Podcast. I'm Andrew Ford, and joining me is Josh Ickes. And we are here to talk about aliens. Aliens. More than one alien. Some of you may have followed that this is a sequel to Alien. Kind of very concise synopsis that I, I'm really quite fond of. Okay. The moon from Alien has been colonized, but contact is lost. This time, the rescue team has impressive firepower. But will it be enough? I, oof. I don't know. Will it? So here, here's part of why I like that. It doesn't tell you anything about the character arc, anything about Ripley, anything about any of the characters. It doesn't tell you anything about the subtext, the themes. So all that comes out brand new, you know? Yeah. And then this is very abstract, like a... I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, yes, I want to see this movie, whatever is going to happen. It's, it's kind of like describing Jaws, like a giant shark disrupts celebrations in a, in a coastal town. I really feel like we should have named our podcast, You Should Be Watching Jaws. Because <laughs> I think we went, we went with that one for a while, yeah. We're, we're, we're going to reference Jaws on every podcast. In fact, uh, something that you don't know yet, because I haven't told you. Okay. I picked up uh, Peter Benchley's book, which I've never read. Really? Yeah, I picked up Jaws, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. I've read the Jaws log. I've watched Jaws a million times. I've watched The Shark is Still Working. I've watched the other Jaws documentary that's on there. There's like a, a filmumentary online uh, mm-hmm. for Jaws where you get to like sort of watch the movie. Sort of like the, when they did that maximum movie mode thing for a while on Blu-rays. Oh, yeah. It's like on, on YouTube, so it like has like little, you know, it'll show you like scenes side by side or like, you know, scenes that are, you know, slight differences. It'll show you like extended cuts, like picture in picture and does like, you know, text things and like here's an alternative score that they were going to use or something like that. It's super cool. It's actually a really cool way to watch watch a movie. And they did it for the Star Wars movies and I don't know if they're still doing it. I should probably look into it. And oh. we should probably attribute it to them so you could go check it out. But if yeah. you search Jaws... There's your Jaws, a filmy mentor, you'll get there. Also, like, just up front, I mean, favorite movies are subject to change at any given time. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're both pretty safe in saying that, that Jaws is in our top five, would you say? It depends. And I'll okay. tell you why, what it depends on. Are we limiting it to one per director? That's one thing. But for me, still, Jaws is, is my favorite Spielberg film, which puts it high in the ranking of my favorite films. Well, and that's some days, some days it is my favorite film, but I feel like I owe a debt to Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think Jurassic Park has more clear issues, but I feel like if you really, and we've actually had a long conversation about this, <laughs> that was at a, at a boarded podcast attempt years ago now. Wow. It, it might come out. I think I saw the audio and it's, well, there we go. Yeah. yeah. But we're not here to talk about Jurassic Park or Steven Spielberg, although clearly we could all night. We're going to talk about aliens from another very talented, very incredible, top of his game filmmaker, James Cameron. Yes. And right off the bat with our, our short synopsis here, once again, I have to bring up favorites. I have to ask you, this is now our second film of the franchise that we're discussing here. What is your ranking thus far of the films? This is, of the two that we've watched so far, this is the worst. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the it's the second best. But that's like, there are two slices of pizza. One is a slice of the Nashville hot chicken pizza that we created. Yes, yes. And the other one is a slice of the Nashville hot chicken pizza that a restaurant tried to market and sell. Okay. So... They're both great because they're, they're both, both pizza. Great. Yes, they're both pizza with hot chicken on them. So it is. And I've often kind of scandalized people by saying that, discluding the AVP movies, that Aliens is my least favorite of the films in the kind of the main franchise. Partially 
and we'll get into this, it's because I was more familiar with a the theatrical, uh, but partially, it, that's not a slight at all. Aliens is one of my very favorite franchises, the Alien franchise is, so it's, it's kind of like picking my least favorite Beatles song, or least favorite Bruce Springsteen song for me. Like, yeah, it's at the bottom of, of the catalog, but that still ranks it pretty high worldwide. Right, it's like we were talking about like we like we said earlier, like it's like what's our favorite Spielberg movie? Well, even my least favorite is still pretty high up there. Yeah, part of the reason I think that I mean, even if this is the weakest, which I I know we're going to get a lot of backlash on that probably, but it's still so very good and so very solid. And why do you think that is? What what do you attribute that to? Like that this is such a it's a seminal film. I mean, it is like. I feel like it sets the tone for uh, action movies <laughs> from then until now, really. Yeah, I think uh, other than uh, – and there's there's a case to be made that this created Michael Bay, which I would say is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's part of a continuum of action uh, and genre filmmaking that eventually worked its way into creating Michael Bay, which I like Michael Bay. I think you like Michael Bay as a te- technician, maybe. I don't want to speak for you. I, you probably like Michael Bay movies. You have a brain. You got a you got a beady, You got a red blood beaten heart. You got, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna pull Alex Jones if we're gonna talk about Michael Bay. Uh, yeah. I like to have children. I like to watch Michael Bay movies. <laughs> I have thoughts and feelings. <laughs> but no. So, but uh, I think it, it comes down to uh, James Cameron is exceptionally good, and this is the first real... I mean, the Terminator, to a degree, had this, but this is the first real uh, opportunity he was given to, to build a world, to build, like a, to build, a, build out a near future with like technology, like, you know, to kind of build... I mean, we get this glimpse of the corporation, we get a glimpse of like an Earth that has a space station orbiting outside of it. We get a glimpse of this new future Space Marine Corps with their future weapons and their future tanks and their robot companion... And all all this stuff, and it's all very. There's like a hierarchy, and like something stay the same, like the general rah rah marine, marine uh, bro code. And then some things are very different. Uh, like you know, there's coed. They're, they're coed now, uh, and you know, they so they still kind of like they have. The, it's an interesting like uh, exploration of like have the same sort of like macho guy attitude, but they're kind of open to accepting like men, women, you know, whoever. That's really interesting. And you get all this, he, he's very good at like just creating a world, giving you like very like well rendered characters in that world. And then even if, I mean, there's somewhat, some of them are stock types, but they're good stock types. And he gives his actors, especially Bill Paxton, a room to kind of, I mean, Bill Paxton kind of established a stock type in this movie with uh, Hudson. So I think that's, that's uh, just another example of like Cameron doing really like knowing like see, seeing something that isn't there and filling that need. You're seeing something that could exist in a movie and putting it out there, and then now it's been ripped off eternally. Um, and so I think, yeah, his world building it kind of goes back to where he's building sets for Roger Corman on movies like Galaxy of Terror, literally world building. And they he you know now he both you know it kind of expands that out and uh, to the logical uh extension where it's like here's a complete universe and some people you know it's easy to say like well the universe was created in alien and he just kind of you know took that and, and ran with it um but there's really not like there's almost nothing 
in Alien that you need to know to get maximum enjoyment out of this movie. And I think that's something that might sound controversial. I'll ask you, Josh, what do you think makes this so successful as a sequel? And what do you think about the world building stuff I said in general, because I talked for a while? <laughs> okay. So I'll take the, the first question first. <laughs> the second question later. <laughs> I think it's fantastic as a sequel because um, I've never been someone who wants just more of the same. Mm-hmm. especially when it's a new director and a new voice coming into a, a franchise, into a series like this. I really want to see their take on the material. I want to see their idea of it. I don't know. If I wanted more of the same, I would just watch the first one again. I find that problematic. Give me familiar touchstones, give me elements, and then take me someplace new, which is totally what this movie does and kind of what this franchise does over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I really like that aspect of James Cameron's kind of, you know, the things that he's obsessed with, the uh, kind of Howard Hawksian dudes doing their job aspect of it, even though they're not all dudes. He has that that interest, I think, in kind of the ground level soldier who their work day in and day out is to go you know, go forth and kick ass. And there's something about that, like, world that is just interesting to him, and he's very good at conveying it. You see it over and over again in his filmography, the working class, the grunt class being represented. He does use stereotypes to get you into the world. He takes them and turns them, he twists them a little bit. Of course, we've seen all this stuff done repeatedly since then. Mm -hmm. But something like Bill Paxton's character, especially being all gung-ho at the beginning. He's the loud mouth. And then as the story goes on, he, he falls apart more and more, and he's the most frayed. He's the most, like, scattered by the time his end comes. And that's just, it's really, I think, impressive. And I don't think it's a huge comment on, like, masculinity or anything, but it is, it's, it's clever, you know, and it shows that his bluster and everything at the beginning really is there to cover up for his weakness and his his own fears i think we talked a little bit offline about the fact that different individual scenes can be indicative of the whole character arc Mm -hmm. and kind of give you where it's going i think a great example of that is when we first meet bishop when we're first kind of meeting everyone when they go to the mess hall and we meet bishop Mm -hmm. who is the played by lance henrickson Who's their their synthetic person? Wait, is that what he prefers? What does he prefer? I prefer to be called synthetic. synthetic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because uh, they call him an android or something at first. When it's revealed to us that, that he is a synthetic, he kind of calls Bill Paxton's bluff, and you see him panic a little bit. Bill Paxton, I think this kind of great performance. It was, I think, almost instantly classic. It was instantly recognized as this fantastic loudmouth marine performance that he gave and kind of instantly satirized and entered the lexicon with his screams of game over, man, game over. It's, <laughs> it's classic and it's fantastic. So that's why I think it works as a sequel. <laughs> it's all those things. Let me, let me throw it back to you a little bit for some more of the world building stuff though. Where do you think, I think, because I do think Cameron is, fantastic at making a world where you don't 
see the seams between reality and the world he's presenting. It is so immersive, and he's thought of so many details. Where do you think that that comes from? Where do you think that he, how he brings that to life within the movie? Well, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Uh, <laughs> I'll be back in 10 minutes. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, good, good. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's a very interesting question. Like, I think that that's when we, I think this gets us to the differences between the theatrical cut and the uh, special edition, AKA director's preferred cut. I think that's where it's more illustrative of what he does to build the world in the director's cut more than there's not as much there in the theatrical cut, which is, I think part of why, and that this could, this is going to be a big segue, a big shift when we're talking about the differences between the two cuts, but this is part of why I prefer the director's cut. And I think, I think you do too. I mean, first of all, we get to see like, just, you open up and, and if you, if anyone's starting this movie, it's going to, you know, basically you have a script and it's like, it starts off, she's floating in space and someone finds her. Like, how do they find her? It's like, well, they send in like a little sentry robot that has like a laser that scans everything. And then they walk in to make sure they're not walking in on anything crazy. They're not walking on anything hazardous and they're not walking in on, you know, and if they're, if they're walking in, you know, to salvage, they, you know, this, this way they find out there's a body in there. There's a living human and a living cat and that they need to tread carefully. They don't get to salvage the ship. They have to report it because it's some sort of incident. All that stuff is characterized in like the fact that you have a guy saying like, oh, I guess our salvage is done, boys. And they never explain exactly what that robot's doing, but you get an idea. I mean, they, they, you know, it like reports like, you know, like, I think it might like have a readout or something, but there's no like, oh, well, there's also, no holding your hand. There's like, it's all, it's all set design. It's all art direction. He doesn't over explain it. He doesn't hold your hand and walk you through it, which I think is nice. It's immersive in that way. Quick aside with that robot. Th- there were a few times where I noticed things that were like visual echoes. Mm-hmm. of things that come later or before in this movie or that reference alien and the way that the robot comes in and scans and the way that they use the laser effects mm-hmm. is incredibly reminiscent of the fog layer over the, the the alien eggs the xenomorph eggs oh totally in the first movie already with that visual to me it's not just the storytelling and the technology of what's going on but it's also that the references to motherhood and all that kind of stuff already are like coming back in. Like the last time we mm-hmm. saw something like this, it resulted in giving birth and it kind of cracked the whole egg on the first one, pun intended. <laughs> and it's really waking up Ripley. It's this weird thing where, you know, every movie gets like one big gimme, gets one big, like, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like in this one, it's that Ripley wakes up just as this stuff is going sideways on LV426. Oh, definitely. I think that's, <laughs> that's something that in the theatrical cut seems a bit more rushed and seems a bit less yes. explained. That's what is great about the special edition is you actually see the colonists and you actually see them discover the ship and you see like kind of what it means, like what they do there and like how they're like, it's like, oh, I found a salvage. They like reported in. And you get all these extra elements. You get all the things like, like we talked about offline. Like the, the kids are playing in the vents, which explains, you know, without telling you, uh, you know, overtly, it, it tells you like, oh, like this is how Newt is able to survive. And you know, it's, it's like uh, she she knows to go into the vents and hide, you know, and keep away from all the aliens once they t- you know attack. And so it's very right. interesting for that reason. Is part of what makes the special edition so much better. 
Uh, but it's interesting you talk about the visual echoes of the robot because it's also, I mean, yeah, it brings in the themes of motherhood, but it's also like just a visual echo of like, it, it reminds you of like, oh, like what she's been through. <laughs> right. Like, is it like, I mean, you know, if you probably know it already if you're watching. And if you don't know, it doesn't, like you get it from Sigourney Weaver's performance and you get it from the exposition and the boardroom scene and, and later. You, under, you understand enough about what happened to her before that you get it. But if this was a completely fresh movie, if it was its own thing, if an Alien didn't exist, but you had this movie, or if you'd never seen Alien before, and you start watching it and, and it has a very... In a weird way, it almost has a love, uh, a more love or an equally Lovecraftian setup, sort of like the crazy person returns from Antarctica and mm -hmm. is locked up at Miskatonic University and is telling people this story about you know these evil things. Only in this case, not only is it real, I mean, in that case, it's, it could be real too, or he could be crazy or whatever. But in this case, it's real, and uh, there's a colony there, and uh, you know they're in trouble now. But it's a very, it's interesting how it, t it keeps like a Lovecraftian aspect, and it keeps that horror approach. Or at least in the setup, and then it, it definitely, like, definitively turns into more of a sci-fi action movie where the elements are more suspenseful than horrific. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's, but it's a very clear decision on the part of Cameron. He's not, he's not worried about undercutting the horror, like, to make his movie work, which I think is interesting. Because I feel like uh, there's, there could have been very easily a situation where you had a filmmaker who was too precious about the original to make any real changes and he was just like no he like made his own movie i think that's a key to what makes it work as a sequel especially is that it is its own and i think his insistence on it being a ripley's story mm -hmm. also like that's the the commonality that we need to carry us through it's funny because i am going to flop on that come the next movie because i feel this one works because we're so invested in her through her trials of the last one. And then mm -hmm. in Alien 3, spoiler, it starts with everybody but Ripley is dead. They've died on the ship that they escape on at the end of this film. <laughs> and a lot of people, it, that hurt them from the get-go with that movie. Yeah. Like, they were not on board with it just because of that. Because you, you put all this uh, emotional energy into wanting Newt to be safe in this film and Michael Bean's character mm -hmm. to have that taken away, which I kind of think is the point of the next one. Cause it's really nihilistic, but we'll get to that <laughs> one, you know, later in the week. But I do think that the world in this and so much of it exists just in the director's cut for me. I mean, we get to see so much more of the what's going on earth side and then on Oh, what do they call LV-246? Uh, had, uh, Hadley? No, something like that. Hadley's Hope Hadley's is the, Yeah, that's the... I think that's the settlement. Oh, right. They have yeah. a different name for the actual planet. Well, we didn't do our research properly, so we, gotta, we should do this all over again, shouldn't we? Oh, it hurts so <laughs> bad. It's like Asheron? Arc? That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's something along those lines, because... I remember it's a reference to one of the circles of hell. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a frozen wasteland, basically. According to Wikipedia, it is called Asheron LV426. Okay. Is it okay. a full name? Wikipedia, which in a true podcast fashion, we have to follow up by saying Wikipedia, which is never wrong. <laughs> right? The whole planet in the previous movie only existed as a little bit around like the dropship. And then mm -hmm. 
pretty much the the alien vessel. That's all we ever see. If it weren't for the director's cut, that's about all we would see in this as well. As a matter of fact, we would only mm-hmm. see the area directly around Hadley's Hope. And you right. don't get to see that much of, of Hadley's Hope. I really think that the director's cut, which once again brings in uh, the fact that Newt's family is out scavenging. Mm-hmm. They've found this salvage, they think, and you know they're calling back in. So it it kind of brings in some of the same elements of like they're worried if that they're going to get a share of the salvage. Everyone needs money. Everyone's struggling. I I kind of like that working class bent that is mm-hmm. kept here in the director's cut because you know we we get to meet like the board members of uh, the Wayland Utani group and kind of see what arrogant shit heels they are uh, <laughs> and I, I like it being contrasted with kind of the workaday people who are out actually getting stuff done yeah, there's there's that great line uh where they're talking about like salvaging i think they get the call about the salvage and it's like well, i would call the you know but it'd take two weeks to get the transmission transmission and then just tell me uh to uh go ahead or, or tell me not to bother with it or whatever he said and then yeah. i said like and then i'm you know and they'll say don't worry about it and they'll say don't worry about it or whatever yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I'm, but yeah, it's like a great little exchange that really feels authentic in a very like, and it's very concise. It's almost like you mentioned Howard Hawks, like it almost feels like a sort of quick bantery thing that would happen in a Howard Hawks movie, you know? Yeah, between characters, and just to kind of to, to go into a, a little bit more of the the shit heels uh, aspect. <laughs> so we get to see more Waylon Utani and and how that corporation kind of works through Carter Burke, uh, who's played by Paul Reiser. Uh, this is pre mad about you, <laughs> Paul Reiser. This was very interesting because, like, he he goes to see Ripley in her apartment, and mm-hmm. that's when we find out that she's been working on the docks, like working the power loaders at the docks, which sets up later when she's able to use it on the ship. Which they set it up again later, even in the theatrical cut, because she's like, "Here, I can help you with this," and we're just supposed to accept that she knows how to do it. But here, we actually get a sense, like, no, the only job she could get was on the docks. Because the stupid people at Wayland Utani were like, "We don't believe you. We think you're crazy. You can't be a captain anymore." So you, she couldn't get a, 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 any better job than working at the docks. But then that, of course, ends up coming in handy. It's very interesting. It's like the ultimate kind of like working class victory at the end. Like we got screwed over by the man, and then the only way we were able to survive and outlast everyone was through sticking to it. That stick to itiveness, and we did it the best we can. And uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and that, obviously, that's only really explicit in the director's cut, and it makes more sense. Like, it, and it works better for the characters, and it it really, it like, it uh, it makes Ripley's journey a lot more organic and a lot more believable. I think so as well. I mean, we haven't touched on the the biggest aspect, at least to me. I, I mean, I think all of the world building helps the the movie incredibly, uh, and it helps me get invested more to be able to see the colony beforehand and not just as this creepy place that the, the space Marines charge into, Mm -hmm. but kind of storyline wise, the the biggest change is the introduction of Ripley's daughter, which Mm -hmm. we really had no clue about and just becomes for me, like such a driving force for her that once again, it explains her actions so much better if that is revealed rather than if it's cut out. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you get adorable Newt, and everybody would want to take care of her no matter what, but Ripley's drive to, and really 
the the way that she repeatedly puts herself in danger because through no fault of her own, she missed her daughter's entire life right. from the age of nine, I believe, because she was trying to make it back for like her ninth or eleventh birthday or something. Yeah, something like that. The fact that we get let in on that, I guess. I don't know if if you don't see it in the film, does it exist even? Just because you know that it exists in the bigger film, in the the director's cut, that's a weird question. Like, is it canon? If right, it happens off screen. <laughs> but well, uh, I believe it's treated as canon. Yeah, but, going forward. Yeah, going forward. But I, I do want to say, like, I think one thing to uh, make clear is the reason that the theatrical cut like came out and works as well as it does, and met with the success that it did, and does still largely hold up as it's still a good movie. I mean, it's just not. Yes. I, I don't think it has everything it needs to be as good as it, as good as a special edition is. But the reason that the theatrical cut works as well as it does is because Sigourney Weaver gives an incredible performance. Yes. They're able to cut this extra connective tissue because she's so good that you can make like she's playing it so well and giving you so much more than is on the page. That you're able to, they're able to be like, well, we don't need this because we get this. We get that she's a super badass. We just assume that she can, you know, it's enough that she just can work a power loader on the docks without knowing that that was the only job she could get. And so she had practice and she was on the space station for a longer time than it seems like in the theatrical cut, you know? Seems like she gets there and then she, like, you know, recovers forever, however long, and it happens really fast, and then she goes. Yeah. Which is sort of what you were saying, where it seems a little convenient that if she happens to wake, her ship happens to be found right when the colony, you know, gets into trouble. But in the special edition, that's not as big of a thing because it's established that she's there a little bit longer than it, than uh, the theatrical cut makes it seem like she is. At the end, when she's running around and they keep trying to find new, I mean, yes, you get on just a basic human level that, yeah, you don't want to let the aliens get this little girl. And the little girl's, you know, Newt's established as like a big character in the movie, on even in the theatrical cut. But I feel like it would have been very easy for a lesser actress in that role or a lesser performer in that role to be like, this is just not, like, why is she, like, stop, like, just get off the planet, <laughs> you know, like, go, like, right. you know, she's gone, she's probably gone. And it, it's, it's, it says something about Cameron's mastery of tone that we, don't, we never think the film is going to allow Newt to die. Not really. But there's still the suspense there that you don't know if Ripley's going to get her, if Ripley's going to survive. Like maybe Ripley dies trying to save her. And then there's, so you still are invested and you're still watching it at every turn. And you also get Sigourney Weaver's performance because you care. And because she, she, you know, she cares so much. You care that much. So I think that that's the, I can understand both for, you know, let's add an extra showtime, you know, per day for the, right. the shorter cut. I get that reasoning. And I also get the reasoning that, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, there are extra scenes if you're just being purely pragmatic about what makes the film work. Like there are no, there are additional questions raised that are answered by the, the special edition ultimately, but they're, you know, you can kind of get away with them if you really. So I see why they cut it, but I still think the special edition is better. I just think it's interesting to discuss why they cut what they cut and why, what works and what doesn't in, in, in each version. Yeah, and I, I do think that most of the like logistical stuff that got cut, the theatrical version of the movie is such like a shotgun blast that mm-hmm. all the logistical stuff is it's like a way homer or mm-hmm. as a uh, Hitchcock put it, it's a fridge moment. Like you, it doesn't bother you until you've left the cinema and you're at your house and you're making a sandwich after the movie. Then it hits I've never you. heard of that. That's great. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's that thing of like your big coincidence happens and you never think about it. 
because mm-hmm. the movie is so entertaining. And I, I think that it really gets by on that. And, you know, a lot of the charm of the, of the characters and actors, you know, Sigourney Weaver nominated for mm-hmm. an Oscar for this role. Which uh, is crazy. Yeah. It's, it's utterly insane for a, uh, a sci-fi film in the, the late eighties, mid to late eighties. Yeah. This is like considered prime Oscar bait. Like the reason we have Oscar bait now is because of this period of time. Right. Yep. Her performance is stellar and the whole cast really like, you know, I, I love Lance and I love, uh, Paul, mm-hmm. but I kind of think these are some of their best performances that they ever gave were in this movie. I would agree. I mean, especially, I mean, Lance Henriksen will be in anything pretty much. Yes. So that's sort of, that's, you the, have to factor the, the British actors kind of mentality mm-hmm. of like, yeah, um, I need paid. I'll do that. That's fine. <laughs> and he's always a great presence. I mean, the only other thing that I can think of him really creating a singular character uh, other than this, and he's he uh, plays a slightly different character in Alien Three. Yeah. is when he is in uh, Millennium, which I haven't even seen all of Millennium. But oh, I, he's the main thing that he's very very yes. good on that show. I, that I, show I, is it, it's I don't know have, have you have you seen Did you watch all of it when it was on, or did you watch? Yes, I have. And once again, to come clean about these things, I currently have a cat named Jones which is named after the cat in the Alien franchise. Okay. I previously had a cat named Ripley, and my dog for years was named Scully. So, yes, I've seen everything about <laughs> the Alien franchise and the X-Files franchise several times. Thank you. <laughs> 20th Century Foxes, please. Yes. it's vi- It was viral marketing every time I go to the vet. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't know you had a cat named Ripley before this. Oh, that's yes, interesting. Yep. I'm learning. I mean, this is all. I mean, this feels like it's all a sham now. Like we may never record anything that's not alien related now. I want or X Files related. <laughs> I guess I'm very confused. I've, I've got you into the web. You, you know, so much of this is going to be Jurassic Park and Jaws, and I mean, eventually we might get down to like Schindler's List, but there's going to be a lot of Spielberg in here too. So don't worry. Oh, definitely. Well, so one thing I do want to uh, talk about before we move past the world building aspect, which we kind mm-hmm. of have, but I'm going to go back a little bit. Let's talk about yeah. so what's James Cameron most known for, other than going to the bottom of the ocean a lot, like for fun. <laughs> what he's known for is he, he always he pushes the medium of film, like he pushes technology uh, all over the place. And you can see the seams in Aliens uh, more than you can see them in most of his work. There are mm-hmm. a couple of uh, rear projection shots that don't quite work. There's a really wonky look. I mean... I understand the mechanics of why, like, you know, when the, the ship is flying and the two, like, like, like wings kind of flap out, you know, like, I get it. Oh, but it looks the, the so attack ship hokey. The yeah, the attack, it looks so hokey yep. when they do that. And there's, like, the scene where the ship crashes later on that's, like, and they're running from it, but it's clearly reprojected. Those are, like, the two yeah. things that really stand out to me. But, like, it's very interesting. Like, you can see, like, here you can see the seams and it's, like, he w- he's a filmmaker who liked George Lucas and Spielberg, and I'm sure some others that probably should be mentioned, but I'm forgetting right now. Zemeckis. They push technology. They, they, they look at, they see what, what they want to do, and they, they push it at, past the limits, and then they invent something that lets them go further. And that's sort of what, what Cameron would do. I mean, you, you know more about the abyss behind the scenes, I guess, than I do, because I had never heard what you told me 
before the podcast about the, the stuff they invented for that. Yeah, the the fact that and that was my first real like encounters with the the fact that James Cameron is a crazy uh, inventor. <laughs> like he's kind of like an Elon Musk of filmmaking, right? Like mm-hmm. dude just keeps pushing the envelope. Like on the abyss, there were apparently several pieces of technology that they uh, him and his brother, I believe, developed. They helped make more efficient underwater personal transport units. The little like pods that they could kind of uh, underwater jet ski mm-hmm. looking things. The helmets that they wear in the Abyss are specifically designed by them because he wanted to get profile shots. And they didn't have helmets that, like wrapped around the face. So you couldn't see the side of anybody's face. Mm-hmm. And so they like engineered this new kind of helmet. Um, that actually wound up giving divers more visibility, you know, for these, like, for this deep sea kind of work. I don't remember exactly, but there was something with the the audio systems as far as he wanted to record live audio from the, the people underwater as opposed to overdubbing all of it, which you totally mm-hmm. could because it's really <laughs> hard to see their mouths in those suits. He wanted the feel, the authentic feel, but didn't want to have this, like, a Darth Vader breathing going on through all of their, their dialogue. So he figured out a way mm-hmm. to, you know, he was a, a builder and a model maker and a production worked in production design before mm-hmm. and that he comes from like a more mechanical background. So he's got like all of these crazy aspects that kind of wind up flowing together where he's not just in one department. He's not just concerned with like where the camera is going to be or what the mm-hmm. performance is like, he wants to know that, yes, this technology on the screen actually works uh, mm-hmm. like he says it does, and that all these pieces fit together in a certain way, and very more like Kubrick in that mm-hmm. way. I think where he's kind of obsessed with all the details of it, and it's well, it's not like a playground for him because he is a very serious man when it comes to making films, <laughs> but. Right. You know, it is like this kind of this great experiment, I feel like. You know, that's why everything from the technology that's on the screen to the technology that they use to shoot the movie, he's pushing all those aspects of it forward. And this is the the beginning of that James Cameron. Oh, no, absolutely. And and I think, obviously, like when we get up to uh, Titanic and Avatar, where he's like inventing, like he's just doing new things. I think after Titanic, I never assumed a sunset was real in a movie. Right. Like, which is kind of a bummer because that's one of the great things, you know, about like big, you know, you want a nice sunset to be real, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so I, just this last week, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning to go shoot a sunrise mm-hmm. and I had six cameras rolling and the sunrise sucked. <laughs> and the next day I had to stay out and shoot the sun going down. Mm-hmm. That sucked as well. Just the clouds were not in the right place. There was nothing for the sun to reflect off of. And it was just like, it was too clear. Uh, and so it had no drama to it. And it was just, it was kind of a letdown. And I so, mean, I, I understand why filmmakers want to control the weather. Yeah. That's actually one of the great best quotes about Lawrence of Arabia. This, cause Spiel, Spielberg is of course a huge fan of that movie. And he said, uh-huh. like, he, he, when he watched it, he was, like, he was amazed that somehow David Lean could direct the weather. And I was like, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, he, they took the time to get, like, we're going to get a fucking desert 
cyclone, like a dust storm going on in the background. You know, and right. you can even see in that where they're shelling the city. Mm-hmm. You're you're behind mountains. Oh, you yeah, can yeah, see. Yeah. And it's literally just like a it's a kind of a terrible effect. You know, it's one of the, it's one of the only effects in Lawrence Arabia that's aged poorly because right. most of it's just natural. You know, it's just stuff they shot or like practical stuff. But this is like a, a matte painting with like just like that like blinks white, and then they sync that up with like explosion sounds, and it doesn't look right. But yeah, it's it's very so I understand the impulse for filmmakers to have control. And I think what's interesting about Cameron, unlike I don't want to shit talk Robert Zemeckis because his stuff, I think a lot of his most recent stuff is very very underappreciated. Uh, mm-hmm. Mostly the walk, I really like. It's kind of incredible. Okay. I, it kind of threw me for a loop, and it even works not in 3D. Like, I thought it had to be in 3D to, to watch it, but you still get that sense of vertigo because he's still putting the camera, you know, and moving it in places where you're going to freak the fuck out, especially if you're afraid of heights like I am. But he is someone that I feel like got caught up in the, like, the mocap and the motion capture stuff and, like, getting, like, what can we do? Or what, like, where can we push this? And then at the expense of some of the stories and right. storytelling and characterization. So then you get something like Polar Express, which is kind of dramatically inert and doesn't really even look like it looks interesting, but I wouldn't say it's like interesting slash terrifying. <laughs> right. Like you got these dead eyed like children and, you know, you got a bunch of different, you know, Tom Hanks's, but then he ends up get he ta- he goes from that to finally going to like Beowulf and a Christmas Carol, which is use the mocap and like the just the dynamic like use of the frame, which where you know they can kind of partition things on separate planes so that it's very like disorienting and something you really genuinely haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Messes with perspective a lot, and then you get it gets really interesting, and he doesn't lose sight of. I mean, he's doing these like tried and true stories and doing them in crazy ways. He kind of learned a lesson, I think, because Polar Express. The book is not necessarily on the level of storytelling as Beowulf and the Christmas Carol. I was going to say, going back to uh, quite possibly <laughs> the the er story, the most basic story, Beowulf. Yeah, like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you could go further back to the drawing board than Beowulf. I mean, maybe if you go back to the Odyssey, that you know, but or it was Beowulf before the Odyssey. I, I, my timeline's off. The Bible's in there somewhere. <laughs> I think the, the Beowulf is, it's the oldest, what do they call like the epic poems? It's like the oldest one of those. Yeah, okay. That's, that's still around. I say all that about the effects and like people who, you know, to, to, to say that Cameron doesn't get bogged down in effects only. Like he never lets the story, and granted, we don't have a massive body of work to draw from, from Cameron. Right. He's made two movies in the past, what, 30 years? Essentially, like, yeah. 20 years, 25 years. It's been 20 years since Titanic, yeah. Uh, ish. He's made three movies in the past 25 years, technically. During the effects revolution, like the big CGI special effects stuff, Avatar is really the only thing we have. And Avatar is not a perfect movie. I would say it's not on the level of Aliens or Cameron's other movies, aside from it's better than Piranha 2. I'm not counting that <laughs> one. It's still a good, like, it's still story and character first. I think some of the fail- failures there are just there's some seams showing in terms of like how to incorporate the technology maybe, but in terms of like just the framing, like the action sequences, the structure, like it's very, he adhered, he sort of does what Zemeckis did by using these old stories, by it, you taking a story and just like take, making a new story, but using a very tried and true format. And I think to an extent, that's what he's doing with aliens. 
a little bit. It has aspects of like it, like a Howard Hawks movie. It's got like a men on a mission thing too. It's got a siege mm-hmm. siege movie aspects. He's able to riff on these things and sort of combine them in like an original way, but also use it to sort of push ahead. Like you know, let's let's see what this can do. Let's see if we can show the planet this way because a big part of the reason the planet isn't glimpsed that much in Alien is because they didn't have the effects to do it convincingly at the time. And Ridley Scott wasn't interested in trying to develop those necessarily. And part of it was because that wasn't the focus of the story. But here it is more the focus of the story. Like you do get more like knowing the layout of the, of the planet and knowing the layout of the town is helpful. Like you do need to have that information. So he, he's able to like, we're going to build this set we're going to, you know, there's miniatures, there's, there's rear projection, there's all this, you know, we're going to incorporate all of this and we're going to use it to convincingly craft this world. I do have to drop in a correction here, a real-time update. Oh no, what did I okay. fuck up? James Cameron, in the past 30 years, mm-hmm. has made The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, True Lies, mm-hmm. Titanic, Avatar, so that's up to five. And that is not counting... The documentaries. The documentaries. I did correct it to go back to twenty. Like I sort of in in game corrected. I think. <laughs> but but you're right. Look, I thought more time had passed. I don't know. Yes. I don't know what's wrong with me. But, I'm covered. I'm covered in sweat right now. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but also, your point still stands. It's not a huge body of work. But also, he has worked as the cinematographer or editor and cinematographer. He's developed these camera systems. For these things and it's not just because he's like this tech wonk who wants to mm-hmm. push that stuff forward it really is because he wants to tell the story in a certain way and he wants to get across what it's like to live in that world or really to push character mm-hmm. i do think falls down hard on avatar on that respect mm-hmm. you know we might have to do that as a future show watch the different versions of avatar because i've i haven't watched like the extended cut or director's cut or whatever you want to call it i don't even know what his preferred cut is mm-hmm. i know that his preferred cut of of this movie is the extended version right you know he's gone on the record with that it takes it from a fun popcorn movie to something that's more hard-hitting and i'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for avatar mm-hmm so we might have to check that out at a future time. A lot of what he gets across here, though, isn't just because of the technology. It's through the story really develops because of the actions that are undertaken uh, by the characters. You know, if we talked about before, like you get a lot of your exposition through the actions that are happening. You you get Hudson's bluster and kind of his cowardice. Even when he does drop like exposition as uh, verbalized, mm-hmm. it comes as a result of action a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting way, and it feels very organic. Like you said, you don't have to have seen the first movie mm-hmm. to get this one because they explain everything, and it's in this great way where it doesn't feel too redundant if you, like we did, just watch the previous movie within the past week, but also it catches you totally up on everything you need to know in this very kind of, it's a macho, but graceful kind of shorthand. Or once again, I think of like someone like Howard Hawks or to a lesser extent, I guess like Michael Mann, that Mm -hmm. they kind of do the same thing where it's, 
there's a lot of lingo that goes around that you kind of don't need to know. You get the idea of what's happening. And a lot of it in this movie is how the characters relate to each other. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of get everybody's station. And uh, like I said, everybody's performance, I feel, is great. And the fact that he did have them all, well, almost everybody train under a, a drill sergeant, I believe, mm-hmm. for a month or so before doing the film. Uh, you know, that really like kind of gives a good cohesion to it, I think. Oh, definitely. Well, and I think uh, the actor who played Apone was a former Marine, or was formerly in the Armed yes, Services. Yes. I don't know if they trained under someone else or if just having him there, but... I remember there's an anecdote on the set, which is sort of funny because I think we've talked about before about the, you know, the Twilight Zone movie accident tragedy and all that and how like stunts were kind of out of hand in certain movies and how that was sort of like a check. Well, in this and even like in other movies during the 80s, there's a really good book that starts with the Twilight Zone uh, incident and kind of explain it's called Special Effects. I forget who the author is, but uh, it goes into the the trial and everything. And it talks about how like the set of Rambo 3 was really unsafe. Someone almost got killed by a helicopter again. But but what's interesting is on the uh, behind the scenes stuff in Aliens, there's a, there's a moment where the uh, they're in the uh, the ATV vehicle, they're trying to load back up after the initial alien attack, after Ripley goes to save mm-hmm. them, and she pulls in, and, and there's a scene where the one character whose name I can't remember right now, but he gets uh, acid sprayed on him when they kill one of the aliens, oh yes, and uh, ends up setting him on fire. But when they did that, apparently the fire burned a lot of this plastic. There was like a lot of plastic in there that like got burnt, and. Uh, that set had a, had, you know, it was enclosed, and whenever it burned the plastic or whatever it burned, it created like this chemical, literally sucked the oxygen out of the room. And at one point, who's the, what's the tough girl's name? I can't remember. Vasquez. Vasquez. At one point, that actress says, uh, I can't breathe. And Bill Paxton says he remembers it because he thought, oh, what a great line to improv. And then he was like, oh shit, I can't breathe either. <laughs> And they they, they did, like and they had to they, they get everybody out real quick and like they they had incidents like that but there was one where the uh, they were flying in on the ship and the roof kind of got knocked off and it like it like fell down and it could have it was like a heavy roof uh, something about like it just like slipped or came loose from where it was like like socketed in and it could have like hit someone on the head and died but like that like Apone that actor like stepped up and was like well, all right let's get out of here move move move. Like get everybody out. It's like we gotta, you know, we gotta answer. We gotta get everybody out of here to make sure we're safe, and like turn into full like army mode, you know. And I thought that was interesting. It's not really related to whether or not the movie's good or anything. I just like these little trivia things. They're fun. We're having fun. <laughs> Isn't this fun? <laughs> this is a good time. This is fun. You're having fun listening too. Like this is <laughs> good time with friends. This is just a great fun time. <laughs> the thing is, like, you don't wind up with a lot of these anecdotes about shitty movies because nobody cares that's true and and yeah they may exist but yeah you don't you they're not recounted yeah you don't you don't go back and they don't become like classic stories you know such as some of these have i've already gotten into my one key thing my life lesson my filmmaking lesson from this the storytelling through action and just the different ways if you were to sit down and kind of diagram this movie and look at all the different avenues that he uses to get across character or exposition. I think you would be well served in your own pursuits going forward to take some of those lessons and apply them. Mm-hmm. Even if it's something as simple as putting the words in a different character's mouth. Yeah. If something has to be explained, don't make someone who already knows about it be the person who's hearing about it. You don't need to do that. They do it 
several times in this film where there's information that almost everyone on screen knows, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it okay. Mm -hmm. You know, as an audience member, never have the thought like, well, they're Marines. Why don't they know this stuff? It's because this is a different Mm -hmm. kind of alien that they haven't encountered before. And so for Ripley to be lecturing them makes sense. It doesn't ever like create that bug in your brain, or at least isn't for me. It it really is like, mm-hmm. like I said, they're all fridge moments. It's all later. It might get to you a little bit, but within the realm of what's happening, like it just keeps you going, and it's it's a great ride. I think. Do you do you have like a, a takeaway, something solid that you know you would say, cite as a, a learned lesson from this film? My main takeaway is I think that this film is the, not the first example. I guess that would be the Terminator. Literally every single one of James Cameron's films. Except for, I have to say, for legal purposes, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Every single one of them is a masterclass in disciplined narrative storytelling. Like visual narrative storytelling, like character moments, themes, like clarity of thematic intention, and uh, just clarity of action. Like he's very, he, he's one of the best, if not the best shooter of action. I mean, he's an incredible action shooter. He, he, he builds these sequences and he knows exactly where to place the camera to get, you know, to, to give you all the necessary information and to make it a pretty shot to boot and it's something he's only gotten better at to the point where we get to avatar the best thing about avatar is that he just the action scenes look dope as fuck yeah and they've got all this crazy depth of field because he shot it in 3d but that still translates on a 2d screen i think that my takeaway is is just to look at the film in terms of how he approached it he approached it as a singular thing like like we mentioned earlier like it, it works as its own movie without the original alien before it and you also get a complete, concise character arc for Ripley. Yes. She wakes up, had a traumatic experience, is trying to adjust to life. She gives it time in the special edition she does. She tries <laughs> to you know, just deal with it. And then she ends up getting called in to help and sparked by you know the loss of her daughter and the fact that she has to adjust to living in a future that she hadn't planned on living in. And she decides to go. And then she, you know, everything about that afterwards, like she she's fighting aliens because like she lost a chance at a life. And so she's fighting back against that at every turn. And she's trying to prevent other people from having, you know, experiencing the same fate. And ultimately it takes to, that goes all the way to the end where she's literally rescuing a surrogate daughter character from an evil mother who would uh, keep that from her. Right. Uh, by the way, are you hearing, are you hearing the dings that are happening right now? Cause I'm getting some dings. You're getting dings? I'm getting dings. I'm getting, I'm just getting text messages. I put it on do not disturb. But, but that doesn't work for my laptop. If you're listening and you haven't heard anything, you hate me right now. And that's understandable. <laughs> but just to keep going, uh, there's a very good video essay on Fandor. It's called Why Aliens is the Mother of All Action Movies. And it's by uh, Lee Singer. And it was for their keyframe site, which I don't think they run anymore, but the video is still out. It's on Vimeo everywhere. And it very, it very concisely breaks down what I'm trying to say, which is that saving your surrogate daughter from this evil mother and also killing that mother's children as a form of like vengeance or like retribution for the child that she lost and, and just kind of, you know, reclaiming her, her right to be a mother and her right to have a life with a child, with a daughter that was taken from her. And it's very, it's like super fucking awesome. Like it's really powerful. <laughs> you have a daughter actually. I don't that I know of. Wah, wah, everybody makes that joke. That's a, that's the worst joke ever. That's a terrible joke. That's a terrible joke. That joke implies that I'm promiscuous. That's a silly joke. We all know that's not even possible. We all know that's not possible. Again, I'm covered in sweat. (laughs) It's a film that is built around the Ripley character, which we mentioned earlier is really 
like would some was something that Cameron and uh, his producer Galen heard, producer and then wife, I think, insisted upon. Yes, and that was very smart because he knew he knew exactly the story you wanted to tell with that character, and he told it exceptionally. He told it exceptionally well, and it remains like a great, an incredible movie. So that's my that's my one. It's kind of an amorphous takeaway. Look at how Cameron approached the movie. Study his approach to storytelling, and the frustrating thing about it is. There's some great storytellers, like Dan Harmon, I think is an exceptionally great storyteller. And what he does is he has this like storytelling uh-huh. circle. It has, a, it has a better name, but basically he has a method. Like he's able to communicate a method. Story circle, that's what it is. Totally right. He can effectively communicate that method of storytelling that he's developed. He has a clear way to tell stories. But I think James Cameron, uh, the frustrating thing about him is I think all this just comes to him naturally. And if he was able to sit, like that's like where film criticism comes in and discussions like this come in and video essays where we're able to actually pit like fractal out his like methods and like look at the movie basically like chop it up like one of those body exhibits yes. you know and like look at it and and just examine it from every possible angle and like then apply it over all of his movies i mean i don't think there's one consistent theory to how he crafts each story like i don't think true lies necessarily has the emotional weight that this does right. it has an emotional weight it's a lot more heightened to make movies with slightly different tones. Like the tone of Alien, though serious, isn't as, isn't as serious as the tone of Terminator 2. It's not as uh, melodramatic as, and I mean that in a positive way, as The Abyss. Right. But he's, a, he, he's able to, to find, look at a story and designate exactly what that story needs, find the hook for that story, the emotional hook for that story, keep it tonally consistent throughout, and execute it using only the essential bits. And it has you walking away thinking like, I mean, I feel like James Cameron should get more credit, honestly, which is frustrating to say yeah. because he's the probably, I think, if not the most financially successful, he's like one of the top three or right. four. I think he might, if he's second to anyone, he's going to be second to Spielberg or Lucas. But then I think he's, he's, it's just those three guys, maybe Peter Jackson, and that's it. And then Ron Howard. I think I know this, actually. I think I'm just quoting a list. <laughs> but he's very financially successful and generally critically successful. I think Avatar still, I mean, it got mostly positive reviews, and that's probably his least well-received movie other than Piranha 2 The Spawning. <laughs> so it's hard for me to say he doesn't get enough credit, but I feel like he's someone people don't study. The same way years ago, I think people would, would go to film school and say, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, Spielberg is counterfeit. He's uh, not an artist. And now they were like, Tarantino's full of shit. And, and then now they're like, no, actually, now I think most people realize, like, no, they're both fucking geniuses. Right. Yeah. But Cameron hasn't really had that yet. And I, I think part of it's due to his, his meager, comparatively meager output. Even to Tarantino, it's still not a ton of films. So and, and I think, uh, let's begin the reclamation now, I guess. <laughs> would be my way yeah, of saying let, it, let it begin with me. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think also his, his populist bent mm-hmm. he is somewhat progressive in his personal politics and stuff i believe he is and he's a, a vegan i believe practicing mm-hmm. um, or vegetarian at least for for a long time mm-hmm. but I, I do think like he's kind of viewed as maybe classical or a little bit staid in his technique and everything because he is i think a very what, restrained or studied or something before he is I think a very classically informed filmmaker as far right. as there's not a lot of, you know, Scorsese, there's not a lot of film school, brought. it really is highly technical filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the fact that Dustin Hoffman got all the accolades for Rain Man when Tom Cruise really has a really tough role in that movie. And it's some, some of the right. best work that he's ever done because it's tough to be the straight man. It's, it's hard to play it like that. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of the same thing here of like, if you do 
the, a great version of this more classic style, people don't take his notice as much as if you did a shitty version of, <laughs> of something new. You right. know, if, if you're the, the innovator, kind of automatically get accolades. So far, we're both mm-hmm. big fans of both these the films we've discussed. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that might change at least somewhat uh, over the next couple, as far as our levels of appreciation go. But for this one, uh, did you have any uh, advanced studies that, that we could kind of delve into that might get further into your into your topic, into your thesis statement there? Yeah, so my main... Uh... My idea for like an advanced study, which I think the more we've talked about it, I'm kind of changing it okay. a little bit. So, cause like generally like there's no clear like forebear, like a uh, plan of the vampire slice, right. you know, there are like seeds of things. Like I would argue that 1941, the Spielberg movie and Poltergeist uh, both exist on a continuum that leads to this where they're both very well made. They're kind of like, theme park rides. Temple of Doom is another one. You know, I feel like it, this, there's a there's a strain of populist filmmaking that's based on like, let's let's just keep it propulsive and keep it going. I mean, Temple of Doom, you could tell me that movie was 45 minutes and I might believe you. Like, it, it, it kind of rockets by, even though like, it's not like a perfect movie. It's just like so much fun. And I feel like Aliens has elements of that and its propulsive narrative structure. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to like really pick one Thing to say like go back and look at this and see how it led to this because i mean cameron I, I would imagine has you know he, he i feel like he he has learned from all kinds of different filmmakers and studied all kinds of different filmmaking to lead up to this to his creation of this but one thing that i thought was interesting and could be instructive is to look at another alien alum and see what kind of work they were doing at the time and also a poltergeist alum since I'm mentioning that as well, okay. and look at the movie that came out a year before Aliens called Life Force, uh, directed by Toby Hooper, who also did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which Ridley Scott made Alien as a, you know, citing that as a notable influence. It was written or co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who co-wrote the original Alien, or wrote the initial draft of Alien, and he got credit, but that's a long story. <laughs> I mean, I give him, he's a great writer. He's, he's involved in so many great films. Dead and Buried is really great. And Living Dead's really fun. Life Force is a very peculiar film uh, in that it, it shares a lot of things with aliens. First of all, it has aliens in it. Number one, <laughs> right off the bat, has aliens. But it also features a strong female character. I'm, I'm kidding. It, <laughs> sort of, she's technically strong. She's also naked the entire time. There movie. is that. Kind of wonderful. Life Force is, is a, like a very interesting thing to look at because it's a big budget movie, also very like shot in the UK, I believe, and it was a big special effects production. There's a, an imagination there, like you can you can see elements of Dan O'Bannon's ideas for Alien in that. Life Force begins with after astronauts find a ship with uh, weird things on it, giant space bats, and then they find these like perfectly preserved naked people. Then they end up, I believe they get like attacked, or they they, they get there's like a parasite that infects them, and only one person survives and splash down. And they try to warn everybody like they're coming to earth and they're going to kill us. And they're going to basically these people, these uh, space vampires, which is the word, the name of the book that that was based on. They suck people's life force out, which is, I guess why they decided to call the movie that a lot of this kind of sounds familiar from. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. It's sort of what, what a sequel to alien could have been 
is you know you take it you move it to earth and then you make you, you don't make it about ripley and you do this weird story like granted this is based on different source material it's based on source material unlike alien or aliens based on a book it's just interesting to see like what was being done by similar people and what uh, you know other filmmakers who i mean at that time toby hooper had just as much like he was on the same level as james cameron the poltergeist was a huge hit he i think still got most of the credit for it I think now people don't give don't want to give as much credit. I don't know where we where I personally fall on that or where you do. Oh, that's, I think that could be its own that episode. That is going to be a, that but, is going to be a discussion for a later date, buddy. Because I have. Um, but uh, <laughs> I guess for advanced studies purposes, like I would say, on the one hand, you could look back at the big budget filmmaking that led to Aliens, which is a refinement, I think, of something like Temple of Doom. Like it has a clearer emotional through line. You're more invested in the characters. I think if, if I'm pressed, I would even say it's a better movie, but that's really hard for me to say out loud because uh-huh. I love Temple of Doom so much, uh, even though, yeah, whatever, it's probably a little, I'll, we'll call it colonial. Um, <laughs> I was going to go with, with uh, the, the, the more up-to-date problematic, but I think your, your term is uh, fitting, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, you can look at Life Force, which is a contemporary of Aliens, I would say it's not as good as Aliens, and it's certainly not as uh, confidently constructed. I've seen it seven or eight times, and I, you know, I've seen it in the theater on a 35 millimeter print. I've seen it, and I've like I've seen both. There's there's multiple versions of it actually. There's a director's cut and a theatrical cut as well, and I've seen both versions of that. I've watched some behind the scenes stuff. I've tried to read up on whatever I could find about it. I I'm no cl- every time I watch it, I just I'm I'm lost. <laughs> like I, I really have a hard time following the plot. There's like a five-minute sequence that's just people opening this, like a series of glass doors running into different rooms. It's a strange movie, and I think it's interesting to look at a movie that basically looks like it was out of control. Like no one, like to, I don't think Toby Hooper had the firmest of hands on that. Uh-huh. And then you look at Aliens and you see someone who's very, in, like fully in charge of his craft. And I think it's worth considering the merits of each. And it's also interesting to see like what Dan O'Bannon was working on, because I feel like he... And maybe this is a controversial statement. I don't know. I feel like he might have peaked with Alien. Like, I feel like that's probably the best film he's been involved with. Not that he didn't do, go on to do other great work, but I think it's sort of like a, not like a fall from grace, because I think Life Force is fascinating. Like I said, I've seen it seven or eight times. Right. Yeah, I mean, so there's my advanced studies. I'm sorry. I feel like I rambled. I, I, I've been doing that a lot tonight. No, I, <laughs> I mean, it's, we have our own show, so that's kind of what it is. I, <laughs> I do think it's an interesting point. You and I both see these continuums in, in pop culture. We see different ones, I think. Mm-hmm. There's something about like the, the way that your brain recognizes patterns and you kind of see how um, something becomes acceptable or becomes popular and it leads to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about my Twin Peaks, X-Files, Breaking Bad theory at some point in time because that's a whole By thing. The way, I'm just going to, a quick aside, there are four brand new episodes of Twin Peaks right now. Yeah, I know. We can watch. I know. They're, they're sitting okay, there I just, waiting. I, we won't talk about it anymore, but I'm freaking out. <laughs> my advanced studies is going to be kind of continuing with my theme of storytelling through action and revealing character through action. So what I'm going to recommend is what I think is the best movie to do that in quite a while, definitely in the last couple of years, but it's a Mad Max Fury Road, which... We we saw it in the theater together, did we not? I believe okay. so. I, I know that's one I saw twice yeah. in theaters. It is a film that I have watched um, ad nauseum. 
<laughs> I believe would be the correct terminology, <laughs> since the time that it came out on a home video release. Once again, I own it in multiple formats because I just put the damn thing on and watch it over and over again. When we first watched it in the theater, I couldn't understand the dialogue for the first like 20 minutes of this thing, <laughs> but I knew exactly what was happening. It's so tightly constructed with regards to each action is revealing more about the world, more about your characters, more about what's happening. And the action is shot so cleanly. Mm -hmm. You know, once again, you can go and find videos online. I believe one is called um, Mad Max Center Framed. And it talks about the, mm -hmm. the the framing techniques and the cutting that even with all this like crazy fast cutting that you never lose where people are. You never lose where characters are, uh, which I think is something we talked about coming out of that first screening, how mm -hmm. the, the clarity of the direction, the clarity of the action, the fact that even though there's these huge convoys of vehicles fighting each other, you never really get lost. You always know which vehicle you're in. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the movie, for me, shouldn't have the emotional weight that it does. Mm -hmm. Like, just on the page, it wouldn't work like that. It is purely a, it's a cinematic creation that it works, I think. And so it's a great example of showing through showing. I mean, it's, it, you learn what you need to know about these people by what they do and how they interact with each other. Especially, I mean, I know that Charlie Theron and, and Tom Hardy get most of the credit for it but i think oh what's his name is it nicholas holt nicholas holt yes yeah always good as far as i'm concerned but his his performance is nux he, he disappears i mean partially it's the the body mm -hmm. makeup but he takes on all <laughs> these mannerisms and this this heightened kind of speech and everything and the the brides the wives the the brood mares whatever they are that is the the MacGuffin the the ladies in this case mm -hmm. they each have their own distinct personality that comes out in their actions because they hardly ever talk they have very little to say mm -hmm. but in the little bit that they do get in the little that you see them they stay true to their characters the whole time and it's just this mm -hmm. great example of all of these characters that would be very confusing otherwise I think kind of like you always know what vehicle you're in you're following all these different characters and, you know, through their uh, elation and then through their despair as one of their number gets killed. And it's just, it's such a tight film that I, th I think it's a, you know, it, it's hard to say that it builds on what Alien did because George Miller was doing the same thing back then. Mm -hmm. But I think it is, if you want to look up one of those strands of um, action movie filmmaking, that does something with uh, with the heart and the mind and is making a little bit of a commentary all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mad Max Fury Road is, is probably your best bet. Secondarily, I would also suggest Jeremy Saunier's Green Room. Oh, all right. Uh, I'm a huge Saunier head. I don't know. <laughs> He's got a good average so far. I would say a solid 66%. <laughs> it, yeah. It does. yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I need to revisit Murder Party. Because I feel like I might like it more now that I've seen him do other stuff, you know? Yeah. The first time I watched it a long time ago, I didn't really pay attention to it mm -hmm. because it was kind of film schooly feeling. Yeah. Blue Ruin is such a jump forward. But yeah. his movies, at least Blue Ruin and Green Room, also there is so much 
character given through action. And in, in these cases, a lot of times it's negative characteristics given through action, and you get to see someone's ineptitude or how poorly mm-hmm. they actually operate in the world. So it's kind of the opposite. It's the flip side of what you see in these more standard action movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that Green Room is another favorite from the last couple of years that I think if it's something that interests you, you know, getting people to express their characters without saying, sitting down and, and saying what their character is and what they believe in. Mm-hmm. That, that would probably be a, a pretty good double feature. Absolutely. I could not agree more with both of those. But I'll, I also, before we move on too far, Fury Road, there's a sequence where um, Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy are like, they're both like fighting together. It's when, the, it's when their motorcycles are jumping yes. over and they're taking turns shooting the motorcycles. And I got it like legit emotional. Now, some of that's because the score, the score like swells yeah. and it's a really good score. But it's also because they're, I mean, it's, it's entirely through action. And that's the, you know, that's the mark of like a, it's like, oh, like I'm being moved because of what these people are doing, not because of what they're saying and what they did before and, the, you know, how they interacted before, not how they're interacting now is what's moving. About. Right. Very clear illustration of what, what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like there's symmetry between the fight that they have when he first comes mm-hmm. upon the, the war rig and uh, mm-hmm. how they fight together later. Mm-hmm. It feels like that's mirrored between those two scenes, and I, I really like that aspect of it. They did similar stuff in, uh, we were talking offline earlier about the second Avengers movie. They have yeah. a lot of like the teamwork fighting and that kind of stuff, and you see when the team isn't working, they you know they fall apart, and when they're having these their squabbles between themselves. But Joss Whedon can't help but also have them have a scene where they sit down and talk about it. Yeah. And these other films, I think, they pretty much just blast forward through most of that. Also, with regards to that, he didn't get much of a mention in the episode so far, but I think Michael Bean is kind of a linchpin and pretty much eternally underrated, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, absolutely. It always bothered me that he had never he never did more, mm-hmm. I guess, or he never he wasn't as much stuff. I actually and his role was originally going to be played by, I think, James Remar. Yes. Yeah. And James Remar had some sort of, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to say anything. I don't know for sure, but I think he had like substance issues or something. Mm-hmm. And so that was why he ended up having to back out, which is interesting. Alien had, it was a John Finch back out and John Hurd ended up taking that role. Right. And so, yeah, they both had like notable departures anyway. But I was going to say like, he, I remember him like in the bonus features for Alien 3, talk, Michael Bean talks about how, how upset he was that he wasn't in Alien 3 and, and how he like talked to his agent, like if they're going to use my likeness, we're going to get him to pay through the nose. Right. Because I'm really not happy about it. And I feel like it's stuff like that that kind of, kept him out of I don't know I mean that's just like I feel like that's that's maybe something that explains because he, he's a great he's great in everything I've seen mm-hmm. him, you know he just wasn't in the, as much stuff as I think he could have been like he's great in a tombstone like he's almost unrecognizable in tombstone yeah. it's not like yeah he has like a mustache he's not, it's not he's not doing like a crazy transformation he's great in that and then um, I remember when he popped up in Planet Terror I was like oh shit I'm so happy <laughs> and that that character, I mean, it's such a goofy, like, arc. And so, like, the, the best thing about Planet Terror is, like, they, they very outright, like, state their arcs. Right. And, like, it's, like, all, all, like, plainly stated. And it's pretty great. But him and Jeff Fahey, their relationship with that is pretty great. Yeah. So, yeah, that is, uh, we, I think maybe the fact that we didn't talk that, that much about him is part of the, also part of the reason why he wasn't in more stuff. I don't know. Like, it's, it's frustrating because he is really great in this. He was. Every time that I watch Terminator... I'm reminded of how oh, yeah. of how good he is, like how much of that movie kind of rests on on his shoulders and believing the relationship, you know, the between 
him and uh, Linda Hamilton. And it's so like in so many films that is done badly. It's done poorly mm-hmm. with the two people thrown together, and then they wind up having you know a night of passion or whatever in the midst of this crazy experience. And it's so often unbelievable. And in Terminator, it just works. And in here, they don't quite get to that same level, but the relationship with him and Ripley is, mm-hmm. they never have to sit down and talk about it. But for me, I, I buy that these people recognize each other, like that mm-hmm. they are, the old Stephen King's word, they're, they're cotet from the, from the get-go. Like, they are simpatico. And there's just something about oh their wavelength. So they brought in Cotet. We're in for a disappointing summer, I think, oh. with that one. Oh, don't I? Uh. I, I want to believe. I believe. I, I, I want to believe too. But I, okay, so we're talking about the Dark Tower. If anyone didn't get get that, yeah. Not everybody's read. I mean, it's, most people might have read The Gunslinger because that's easy because it's yes. short and it's great. But if you, you really get into, if you can get through Drawing of the Three and the Wastelands, then you're then you're then you're golden. Yeah, but. I think when, once you're there, then Wizard and Glass is the best, and then you're just going to power through the last ones. <laughs> but when they cast Matthew McConaughey as the Man in Black, that was when I was like, "This is too like Idris Elba is perfect." I think that's a great, yes. great uh, pick. But I think McConaughey is too on the nose for that. I don't know. See, that didn't bother me as much as the the thing in the trailer where um, he flips the bullets up into the air. And catches them in. I'm sorry. He flips the cartridges up into the air. and catches them in the the chambers. Josh, Josh, they're they're showing characters through action. Oh, is that what that is? Okay, good. <laughs> son of a bitch. Well, on that note, no. Uh, <laughs> so we've all got good advanced studies picks. I feel like is there anything else we we uh, we haven't covered with? Oh, I have one thing, but I'll I'll ask you if you have something first. Okay. No, I was just going to suggest to everybody to pick this up on whatever format currently available to you. I, uh, I have the Blu-ray box set with all four, I guess, core films from the franchise in it mm-hmm. that has like tons of special features. The thing I found out while I was traveling last week is that's all also available on iTunes, which was kind of a lifesaver for us doing this show because I was out in the, mm-hmm. the, the wilds of Western Massachusetts for most of the week and streamed it right to my, my iPad, which was pretty awesome. And the fact that like all the featurettes and commentaries and stuff are available as iTunes extras is awesome. And I've, I've not, I've got like 180 some movies in my iTunes library. I've never watched special features on any of them until now. And it's, (laughs) it's damn addicting. It's great. I feel like I'm living in the future that I have this television that I carry around in my backpack. (laughs) Well, and with with the caveat that it is a little slightly more expensive for the iTunes collection. Uh, than it is for the Blu-ray set now. Blu-ray set is great. That's what I have too. But yeah, the iTunes, that's like the convenience you can't really beat. That's kind of incredible. Yeah. The fact that they have extras on there like is why I buy stuff on iTunes, especially like if a new movie comes out because they usually have it cheaper. It's in HD and it's got a special features. Yeah. So yeah, I highly recommend picking those up. Also, Alien Covenant is now in theaters or should still be in theaters by the time you're listening to yeah. this. I've seen it. I know you haven't. And I think it's, I, I will say, I think it's very much worth seeing. I, I will even go so far as to say it is quite good. Okay. It's a movie that needs more discussion. And I can't really, I don't really feel like I can just split it into good or bad, or you have to see it. You don't have to see it. If you like the alien movies, and if you're interested in Ridley Scott as a filmmaker, and I would say, especially if you are skeptical about the Blade Runner sequel, but are open to other movies exploring similar themes okay. to the original Blade Runner, 
that I think you're going to be happy, which is interesting. It, it's not a stealth sequel to Blade Runner, I should be clear about that. It's just, it has, thematically, it covers some similar ground, because obviously you've got Michael Fassbender's character is, is a major character right. in this. So. Speaking of stealth sequels, <laughs> the fact that James Cameron managed to drop a Cyberdyne Systems reference into this film. Ah, oh, I didn't catch yeah. that. That's awesome. That's, <laughs> they talk about the fact that the uh, Ian Holm android in the first one was one of the old Cyberdyne models. And they were always a little bit twitchy. Oh, I heard. I remember hearing. Yeah, I didn't make that connection. That sucks. I'm such a dummy. Fuck. That's so yeah. good. Yes, but you want to talk about a franchise that heads in the opposite, or not the opposite direction from the Alien franchise, but definitely. I remember. I'm nostalgic for a, a time when Terminator Three would have been good. Oh. I still think it's interesting, but man. Yeah, there's there are a lot of issues there i don't know if we ever get around to a new terminator which you know arnold's up for coming back for i believe the last thing that i read i think he said they said that he him and james cameron were going to do it but that james cameron would not be directing it so i don't know what that meant before i forget i do want to say the one thing that has always bothered me about this movie from the basic idea of it to the execution to the ending of it and they even deal with it in the execution the alien's blood is acid if you shoot them with bullets the acid's gonna spray all the fuck over you, and they show a couple. They show it happen a couple times, but it should be happening all the fucking time. They should be like, there should be acid everywhere. It's the worst idea ever to go after with bullets. It's such a dumb idea. It, it, like Marines versus aliens. Like, oh, they're gonna shoot them up. It's like, no, everyone's gonna get covered in acid. Get acid for blood. It's it's always gonna bother me. Like, look, this movie is incredible, and they pay lip service to it by having people get hit with acid like a few times. But man, that whole place would be melted to the fucking ground. Because there's so many aliens that get killed, and they have so many times where the aliens get hit, it's like a mist explosion. It's like, but or like a dusty kind of explosion, yeah. and not acid. Look, you go in there with fucking flamethrowers, all right, and you just you flamethrow the shit out of them, but you don't shoot them with bullets. Yeah, they even have a moment where they're like, we're under. They have to. They have this whole thing where it's like, oh, we're under the. I mean, it works for you know in the movie, like it actually helps amplify the suspense. Like you have to take all our bullet cartridges because we're under something else. We're under something that if we fire a bullet. And there's fire, the heat exchanger, heat exchanger, I think is what it's called. It'll explode and kill all of us. And uh, they they have that thing as a device to like amplify the tension, take away all their bullets, right? So if they fire bullets, you're worried. It's like, no, I'm already worried because they're going to fire bullets to get covered in alien blood, which is acid, which will kill all of them. Anyway, I don't know. I'm not crazy. Am I crazy? This is a big deal. Like that. You you you. We we talked a little bit. There's like a gimme, right? And the gimme is like she wakes up around the time. The, the planet gets attacked by aliens. My gimmick is that they aren't all melted to the fucking bone by the time the movie's over because they're all covered in acid. It, yeah, it uh, especially in the scenes where they just like blast the shit out of them. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the aliens are like utterly chewed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. They should be standing in a smoking hole in the ground with what we, we've yeah. seen that the acid does. Uh, it, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There, there's a few quibbles like that, but once again, for the most part, they get by you <laughs> and it's enjoyable while you're watching it. I think it's an incredible movie. I just that's always bothered me. I can put it aside while I'm watching it and enjoy it, especially almost 100 percent because I get invested in the characters, which is what we've talked about being one of the big strengths of the movie. And that's you know, if it if it can distract you from 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 that. You get distract me. You guys heard how angry I was. It's it's one of those like um, how did Indy get across the ocean? Was it really on top of that submarine? Well, okay, <laughs> that's such a small thing. Like this is the whole movie. Uh-huh. That's a tiny thing. 
look, the submarine never goes underwater, and they can't see him on the periscope because he's wrapped. I mean, just come on, of course. Yeah, he he rides the whole three thousand miles across the ocean or whatever it is. I get it. That's fine. I mean, he's a clay, he's a claymation guy on a miniature. He doesn't need to breathe oxygen. He's made of clay. When they do that, <laughs> you, you dummy. <laughs> Why don't, you re- why, don't, why don't you read a book, asshole? Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> One day we will talk about Reasons of the Lost Ark because we could talk about yes. all kinds of stuff there. Although eventually we won't do only popular movies. I feel like eventually we'll do something weird. But for yeah. now, Aliens is great, available on Blu-ray, iTunes, and the bonus features are well worth checking out. There's a very in-depth documentary uh, that includes James Horner talking about when he just being very frank and candid about how shitty the process was for scoring the movie and how he and Cameron like would argue and how they had to, I think he, he even like throws some shade. No, it's not really shade. It's kind of just like, like I guess Galen heard was like being a little demanding. And he was like, look, I can't like, you want somebody to do the score in this amount of time to get somebody else. He's very candid and it's really, it's refreshing to see. So. Yeah. And especially to, to know that he and Cameron came back together and worked together more later. Right. I, I do really like the fact that he kind of dishes on how insane the process was and how inexperienced Galen Hurd and James Cameron were at that point in time. Like the fact yeah. that they came from this super low budget background. And we've done this, we've made these movies before where you're kind of throwing everything mm-hmm. together as you go and you don't plan ahead because you can't plan ahead because it takes money to right. plan ahead. <laughs> Or you can't plan ahead because the director won't give you a shot list, even though you're the first AD, but we don't have to go there. Oof. Oh, well, all right. I guess we won't send this out <laughs> to anybody in Nashville. Yikes. Oh, but oh I, I don't care. But uh, I concur. No, no, I still live here. Come on. I got a, I got a couple of mountain ranges between me and whoever. Dude, I don't care. I mean, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> who, who cares? We're not naming names. Not and he knows what he did. He knows what he did. Although you, we're not naming names, but uh, we are both on IMDb, and you can check our credits and uh, figure some things out for yourself. But at any rate, I'm not saying I'm just saying. You know what I'm saying. You can follow me on Twitter at, at aford88. That's a f o r d eight eight. You can also email us any feedback or ideas for episodes, or uh, plead with us to stop doing this at. Uh, <laughs> Empathy Machine Podcast at gmail.com. And Josh, uh, you are on Twitter as well. Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Spartacus. That's S P A R T I C K E S. Uh, it's a pun involving my last name. It's a poor man's toaster. It's a, it's a poor man's what? Never it's, mind. <laughs> it's both. It's, it's both. both. You can check out more of my work at the79hawks.com. Uh, my work as a cinematographer, filmmaker, editor, yada, yada, yada. That said, this has been a Sunday Night Hawks production. Come back next week for Alien 3. Yes. I mean, well, we'll come back and you can you can stay where you are. You can, you don't have to, you're not leaving. You're not going anywhere, so you'll just be there. Uh, I mean, well, you, sh- you shouldn't right. assume. You should. I should no. assume. Also, rate review us on iTunes. That'd be great. That'll boost us in the ratings. We should be the number one podcast Number one film-related podcast, I think, by the time we get done with the Alien series. Yep, I concur. I think uh, it will be incredibly popular. It's going to be sweeping the nation. <laughs> Have a good evening or whatever time of day it is where you are. Have a good rest of it. I'm Andrew Ford. As Josh said, this is a 70 Hawks production. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>